So Deuteronomy 25 and then Acts chapter 22. Verse 30. <clears throat> Let's hear the word of God from Deuteronomy. If there is a dispute between men and they come into court, and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then, if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given him, but not more, Lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. Let's now turn to Acts of the Apostles, chapter 22, verse 30. Word of God from the New Covenant. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, the tribune unbound, unbound Paul and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to law? And yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a, discussion, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the 
dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Here ends the reading of God's word from the Acts of the Apostles. There are three institutions that God has invented. The family, state government, or just government, and the church. God did not invent the Patriots, the Red Sox, or any other team. But these are institutions that God has invented, and they are there for various purposes, and they should not be confused. The family should not be confused with the church, and the government, the civil government of any land should not be confused with the family, etc. God invented government, or the state, to do justice in this world. He invented it so that vengeance would not be something that a family member would have to execute against someone who commits a crime against his or her family. In other words, we are not allowed to have personal vengeance, personal justice against someone. We can't take the law into our own hands. We are to go through the courts, through the government. And God invented the state, the government, and the working of laws, and the working of procedures, and the working of judges is God's idea. Laws are required to establish right and wrong and for evaluating also the truth of various pieces of evidence. In the ancient world, I mean, you could go all the way back to Moses and Mount Sinai where God wrote the constitution for the Israelites, for the Jews. The laws of Moses are there in Deuteronomy and Exodus and there's various procedures and so forth. But in the ancient Roman world, there was also procedures to follow, to judge evidence, to have a, an accused person, a charged person, Someone's charged with a crime, they get to face their accuser and they get to defend themselves. And then there's the weighing of evidence. As we read in Deuteronomy 25, the first three verses, there's a, a, a set pattern for God's people, the Israelites in Deuteronomy, but it also filtered out into the, the pagan world. And the Roman Empire had very special laws for citizens. And it turns out Paul is a citizen of Rome. So Roman law and ancient Greek law and the laws of Mount Sinai, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, had rules regarding evidence and how you proceed with a criminal case. The goal was always justice. <coughs> that the judge would judge the evidence, not be partial to the poor, not be partial to the rich, not be swayed by any personal relationship he has with the charged person or the accuser. Now this justice should be what God sees done in this world through the state government and so forth. 
So the goal was always to get at the truth in pagan government and in the, the government of the Israelites. Now in chapter 22, the passage before this, we saw this last Sunday, but let me remind you, there was a mob and a riot that almost ended up killing Paul in Acts 22. And, but before the riot went nuts, so to speak, and violent, Paul was defending himself publicly in Jerusalem and he said these kinds of things, just as a summary, to the mob or to the, to, the, to the Jews in Jerusalem. Paul explained, number one, who he was and gave his character references. In summary, he said, I'm a Jew living according to the law of my ancestors, according to the law of Moses, etc. I am well educated and I'm known by the high priest and the whole council in Jerusalem. I was given letters to go and persecute the church. So he defines himself as someone who's obedient to the law. He defines himself as a Jew. And then he goes through his, his version of the events that have led to the, the sort of riot. And he basically says, I heard a voice from heaven. It was Jesus of Nazareth. And I was you know, put blind on the road to Damascus. And then I was led to Damascus. And a Jew, an, a, a, a Jew who people know as an honorable Jew, put his hands on me and I regained my sight. And he told me, this Jew, this reputable Jew in Damascus, told me that Jesus wants me to do this, proclaim the truths about him. So he gave proof. He was known to the Jerusalem council. He was known to the high priest as someone persecuting the way, the Christians. He was known to this man Ananias in Damascus who is known as, a, as an honorable Jew, one who, who, who is reputable in Damascus. And so he's got these witnesses he's basically putting forth, Ananias in Damascus and the, the high priest in Jerusalem and the, and the council in Jerusalem. And basically Paul is denying all the charges against him that he's polluted the temple, corrupted it by getting a Gentile in there and so forth and so on. He's saying I'm a good Jew and all this and a riot breaks out when he starts to say that the good news is going to go to the, gen the Gentiles. So the, this is not, this, in chapter 22, there was not a court scene, but he is defending himself. He is now, in this portion, in a courtroom. In Acts chapter 23 here, Paul is in the Jewish court of law, you could call it the Supreme Court in Jerusalem. This is the law, of the highest court in Jerusalem. And there's the high priest there, there's the judges, and Paul is about to give testimony to the Jewish judges. All right? And he is expecting to be judged by Jewish law the laws of Exodus, Deuteronomy, and so forth. Now I'm going to skip to the last verse, or almost the last verse I read. Yeah, the last verse I read, that Jesus said to Paul following a vision, or Jesus standing by him, Jesus said to Paul, take courage, for as you have testified, as you have testified, as you have testified, so you will testify about me in Rome. 
The word testify is used in English for two different Greek words. And there's a slight difference to them. And you can see it here. Paul is now in a court of law. And the word in the Greek that's being used here means testify, but it means especially like swearing an oath or giving a solemn declaration about the truthfulness about what he's going to do. So what Jesus is saying here is take courage. As you have testified by giving a solemn declaration about the truthfulness of what you're about to say, it's like you saying, well, yeah, you, you have a business transaction with someone and you say, well, I'll pay you, I'll pay you, you know, $1,000 for your car and then all of a sudden the person jacks up the price to $2,000 and you go to court and say, well, this is that, that, and well, you might talk to your neighbors and say, well, I offered him, you know, we had a deal, we shook on it, and now he's going back on it. Well, now you go into the court of law and you give a solemn testimony. You realize the judge is going to judge your truthfulness based on what you're saying, so you're careful about what you're saying. You give a solemn declaration about the truthfulness of something. Paul is in a court of law here. It's the Jewish court of law. It's sometimes called the Sanhedrin. It's the council and so forth. The court is supposed to follow the proper procedure. Follow all the laws of Exodus and Deuteronomy that God had given them. And Paul is expecting them to follow those procedures because he's a good Jew. He knows the law. He's educated. He is a follower of the law. He's a Pharisee. He cares about the law. He cares about the revelation of the Old Testament. Years before Paul is in this particular situation, Jesus was in a similar situation. He was in the Jewish courtroom in Jerusalem. High priest is there. The Jewish council is there. The judges are there. They're judging Jesus. John chapter 18, verses 22 and 23 describes the kind of justice Jesus got. Now Jesus began to explain, how, well, let me just read the text. In, in John chapter 18, verses 22 and 23, just two verses. When Jesus had said these things, the things that Jesus said were, just ask other witnesses. Don't ask me about my teaching. I teach, I teach publicly in the temple. You can ask all these people. I've always been public in my preaching and teaching. So, so when Jesus had said these things about his public teaching, just go ask those witnesses. One of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I say is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But, what, but if what I say is right, why do you strike me? Nobody had judged the evidence, pro or con. Jesus got struck on the mouth by simply saying, why are you asking me? There's plenty of witnesses to my public teaching. I, teached in, I taught in the temple every day. 
kids. There's hundreds, maybe thousands of witnesses about what I taught. Go and ask them, why trust me? And you get smacked in the mouth. At the command of a judge who should be impartial and listening carefully to pursue the truth of what Jesus was teaching and preaching and doing. Now if we go to Acts chapter 22 and 23 with Paul's situation, let me ask, who do you, other than God obviously, but who's the most important and powerful person in this passage? Paul is arrested. You could say it's the high priest, Ananias. You could say it's the council. Those will all be, you know, they have official duties. But the most important person in this passage is the Roman tribune. The passage began with the tribune saying, well, the text says, the tribune desiring to know the truth, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused unbound Paul and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. He's taking control. This is a pagan. This is a Roman who is both a soldier and a governor over Jerusalem. And he is pursuing the truth. He just wants to know what's going on. What is the real charge? What's the real charge? He wants to get at the truth. And he's protected Paul already from the mob. He's also found out Paul is a Roman citizen. This Roman tribune is the most important person in this passage. He calls the, the, the Jewish authorities together. He wants to get to the truth of it. And Paul begins to open his mouth and one sentence comes out and they smack him. The tribune is watching all of this. This is a grave injustice. And he's probably thinking, I don't know if this, is, this doesn't make sense to me. He hasn't even said anything and they smacked him on the mouth. And Paul then goes on to say, in response to being hit in the mouth, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck. He's right. Contrary to the law, he's already been punished. You don't strike anyone in the Jewish court system until you've judged the evidence, pro and con. The accuser comes, the defend, defender, the person accused, they have their day in court, the judges evaluate. Nobody's even, even come close to that. They smack Paul as he's even beginning to defend himself. He had more opportunity to defend himself in a sense with the mob. The mob was quiet when he started speaking in Hebrew or Aramaic. This is the justice that is happening in Jerusalem in the days of Jesus and Paul. It is a corrupt, vile system. There's non-biblical data about this Ananias high priest. He loved money. He loved his his status, he was known even amongst non-Jews or Jews who are writing about that period of history as a corrupt man. And certainly Jesus found it, probably a different high priest in, during Jesus' court system 
in Jerusalem, different high priest, but still the corruption in that court in Jerusalem was profound. So Paul then thinks, well, Paul thinks this is, how can this be the high priest? He's, he's having me struck. Turns out it is the high priest. And Paul knows that the law says you should not revile one of your rulers, including the high priest. So he kind of makes us perhaps sarcastic. You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. I did not know, brothers, he was the high priest. Then Paul goes into this, <laughs> brings up the reason I'm on trial here is because I believe in the resurrection. He knows, he knows the Jews. The Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection. They don't believe in the spirit. They don't believe in angels and so forth. And the Pharisees believe in all those things. And they're both parties in this courtroom. And he begins to say, and then they start, to, they, they start arguing. And it becomes violent. It becomes violent possibly between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and it starts to be, look violent against Paul because he's a Pharisee of Pharisees, so to speak. And justice is not being heard. There's nobody pursuing truth. It's might makes right. Let's start duking it out. Let's start bite, fighting and you know, whatever. And the Pharisees, the, the, the Pharisees start shouting, basically, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And then it gets more violence. We have this word mega in our culture, mega this, mega that. Well, it's the word mega. It's a mega discussion or a mega fight going on. And the Roman tribune is watching it, probably because he's up high watching what's going down in this, going on in this council, and he's got his soldiers down there too. And he rescues Paul. He literally rescues Paul from being killed. Because God's people, using God's judicial system, are so corrupt, they're going to kill a man who's totally innocent. Like they killed Jesus. So Paul, towards the end of this passage, is safe in Roman hands. Pagans rescue Paul. The tribune who wants to pursue the truth orders it. Because he sees what's happening and he's afraid Paul is going to get murdered. So he sends his soldiers in and they rescue Paul <clears throat> because they have the might to kill for real. They are professional soldiers. What then happens is Paul goes to sleep and the following night the Lord stands by Paul. Pretty spectacular to think that physically... Jesus is standing there. He's got one body. He can't be in two places at once. Doesn't say it's a vision, but it says the following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome. This is Jesus' plan for Paul. He might not have known the specifics, but he knew the general tone of what he was called to do. What does it mean to take courage? 
Well, the, the, the word and the phrase take courage is used in the Gospels in two ways. Um, two places I want to bring to your mind. It's used when Jesus is getting ready to do a miracle. One situation is Jesus says to a paralyzed man, take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. And then they, they have an uproar about, you know, how can he say your sins are forgiven? Only God can do that. And Jesus heals the paralyzed man. Then there's another situation in the same gospel of Matthew where Jesus is going to heal a blind man. And they say, take courage, he's calling you. He's calling you. And Jesus is about to heal a blind man. So in one situation, he's going to, he forgives the sins of this paralytic. He heals the paralytic. Another one, he, he heals a blind man. And then John 16, when Jesus is discussing, he's going to be leaving his disciples. And they're getting all upset. You're going to leave us. We want a king, whatever. They have a misunderstanding of what the work of the Messiah, the Christ, the Redeemer is. But Jesus explaining, is explaining he's going to leave. And in John, Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 33, he has these things, to, this, this phrase comes up again. I have said these things to you, he's talking to the disciples, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. So there's a strange thing. Jesus saying, I've overcome the world. But you're going to have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. So in the persecution, in the suffering, in Paul being told, take courage. It's, Jesus has said this kind of thing when he's going to do a miracle. So it's the comfort of Jesus Basically telling Paul and all disciples, I know. I know what you're going through. I know what I've planned for you to go through, whether it be the Apostle Paul or all my disciples. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, take courage. I have overcome the world. The world is not running out of control. Well, what's the conclusion from this passage? Well, Jesus has control over what's going on. This is Jesus saying to Paul what's going to happen. He's already said it. It's happened. He's been protected. He almost gets killed once. He almost gets killed twice. He's left for dead in, the, in earlier chapters. And here he is. A Roman tribune is rescuing him. And Paul will continue to have his life preserved in dangerous situations over, you look at the rest of the chapters in Acts, one situation after another, and he's going to go to Rome. He's already completed his testimony in Jerusalem. He's done. He's done with dealing with the Jews. He's done with the public proclamation of what he's seen and heard about Jesus. He's told them the facts. Mob broke out, wanted to tear him apart. Tribune rescues him. He's in the courtroom of uh, authorities in Jerusalem, the Jews, they won't even let him speak, except to say, I believe in the resurrection. So he's going to Rome. 
and it will take him some years to get there. And Paul will need courage. And he will also have a passion and a love for the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christ. He is filled with the Spirit to proclaim the good news over and over and over again. What's the crucial evidence that Paul wants everybody to know? What's the crucial thing that he's telling the world and the Jews about Jesus? The resurrection has begun. It has happened for Jesus of Nazareth who died and was raised. So what, you might say, so what? It's the resurrection. Well, the so what is this resurrection of Jesus is the hope that Israel was supposed to hope for. That there would be one of the Jews who would be a descendant of David who would rise from the dead and be the ruler with all authority in heaven and earth. Who would make everything new. And this same Jesus and his resurrection is the hope for the world. The entire world needs to hear of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the resurrection of Jesus is the hope of all the Jews. The resurrection of Jesus is the hope for all the world. Paul is proclaiming it. And in the process of declaiming that Jesus has been, risen from, has been risen, raised from the dead, that resurrection means death has been defeated. By the one man, Jesus, the righteous one, Jesus of Nazareth, who lives now and is ascended into heaven, death has been defeated. The devil has been defeated. The powers, demonic powers, have been defeated. And the fear of death is gone for those who are in Christ. Those are the kinds of things he's telling everyone wherever he goes. Now the bizarre thing, I say bizarre because Paul's Paul was the founder of the church in Corinth, and in 1 Corinthians we find that the Corinthian church did one of these, some people don't think there's a resurrection in the church. And it's one of those sort of strange opportunities where Paul hears about a heresy in the Corinthian church and we hear Paul's defense. No, there is a resurrection. There, here's what he writes. 1 Corinthians 15. This is how crucial the resurrection is to our faith. It is not, it's not a philosophy. It's not some sort of, maybe there's a resurrection of, of dead people, like maybe there's butterflies coming out of cocoons. You know, no, this is, this is an event that is real. Jesus was dead and buried, and now he's alive. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ 
has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Just like you have trees that are going to be having apple blossoms and various blossoms, you're going to have fruit on these trees later in the growth season of the summer. So Christ is the first of what is going to be a harvest of resurrected human beings. That's what Paul is saying. It is a non-trivial historic event. It is the most profound historic event since the creation of the world. And so Paul he starts to defend himself. They shut him up. And he goes on to say, I'm a Pharisee and I'm on trial because I'm a Pharisee and I believe in the resurrection. And they all go ballistic. Well, what are the applications for us? This past week I was with Dr. T. David Gordon hiking in the White Mountains and we talked theology and various kinds of things. It's an enjoyable experience both for the beauty of the mountains and, and the theological discussions we get into. And I don't know what prompted this, but he was talking about how when he was a pastor in Nashua, there was some relative of a member of the church in Nashua who was dying. And so the relative, or the, 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 the member of the church said, would you visit my, let's say, uncle. He's an unbeliever. He's got terminal something. He's in the hospital. Would you go and visit my unbelieving uncle? So Dr. Gordon said, I went and visited him. And you know, the man looked a wreck and he knew he was a pastor and so forth. And, and apparently the man said, I don't understand what's happening to me. I don't understand. I'm dying. It's kind of late to come to the realization that you're going to die when it's imminent. The resurrection of the dead for us should be no surprise, just like death is no surprise. Christ rose from the dead. He was dead three days in the tomb. You will be dead one day. What's the, what's the mortality rate? One out of one of you is going to die. It's not a surprise. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you should be terrified of death. Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do you believe in your own real resurrection from the dead? Not as a theory, not as a general idea like, oh yeah, maybe 
a fact for which there is plenty of evidence in Holy Scripture from Paul testifying and Peter testifying and Jesus testifying and the whole Old Testament pointing that there would be one who would be rescuing us, not from, from problems in this world, but from death itself. So the first application for you is you're going to die. Believe in the resurrection for the, for the restoring of your soul that you would know that it's not the end. And then live your life daily knowing, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I believe in my own resurrection. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. What can man do to me? Well, they can kill me. But that's not the end. That's not the worst. Second application is it's clear who's in control, isn't it? Jesus is in control. You're going to Rome, Paul. Jesus is the king and he's ruling over everything. He has all authority in heaven and earth. He's not ignorant. He's not, the world is not running out of control. Third application is maybe a little indirect, but notice who the good guy is in this passage. Obviously Paul's a good guy. The pagan tribune who believes in all sorts of multiple gods, who has not one, one little bit of faith in Jesus or the Old Testament. He's the good guy. He's pursuing truth. He's pursuing justice. He's rescuing Paul from an, from an early death. The image of God in this tribune is stronger than in the Jews who have the written word of God who are supposed to be sitting in Moses' seats and judging righteously. And they are the unrighteous one. Here's the pagan, an unbelieving worshiper of idols, who's the good guy. Martin Luther, who was, was known to getting into various arguments with the Pope and so forth and saying various almost slanderous things about the Pope and others, also lived in a time when the, the Muslims were coming close to being invading Europe. And because he had first-hand experience with some of the rulers in Europe, the princes and the kings and so forth, he said he would rather have a competent Turk than a prince of Germany ruling. There are times when I wish we had a competent Muslim ruling in this country or a competent, you fill in the blank, atheist, rather than some of the so-called Christians ruling. But notice the contrast. It's shocking. Those who had the word of God were the most corrupt. Those who were sitting in authority were the corrupt ones, at least in this case. Pontius Pilate, not too good. So the Roman tribune saved Paul from being killed. The Roman tribune called the Jewish council to hear Paul so he could learn the truth through their procedures. And may God give us competent rulers, whether they're believers or not, in the U.S. courts versus hypocrites who know the word of God and don't do the word of God. 
Now, this is, I got a negative application for you. Hopefully you understand that. Don't expect me to say tomorrow, Jesus came and visited me last night. He stood by me and said, Steve, take courage. Although I do take courage, but I don't expect to have a vision of Jesus. I have the written word. It's finished. I'm proclaiming it. Here's the last application. When you're in a situation, circumstance in life, whatever it may be, when you need courage, preach the resurrection to yourself. I mean, I can think of no better truth. You're immortal. You will rise from the dead one day and live forever and ever. What can your boss do to you? What can your broken relationship do to you? What can your, say, loneliness do to you? What can your anxiety do to you if you really know as a historic event, Jesus lives and will bring me to be with him, with my resurrected body? What can anybody do to you? They can kill you, and you're with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are in many ways a confused people. We look at our circumstances. We look at what might happen. We look at what has happened. And those things, those experiences, those events in our lives cause us much anxiety and fear. We pray that the truths of your written scripture would be the antidote to our fears, our anxieties, our worries, our nervousness. That we would truly know your word and all the encouragement that comes from it. That though we may be confused, we're not without hope. Though we do have suffering and tribulation, we do not suffer the way unbelievers suffer without hope. May you take your written word now as it's been read and explained and have it penetrate to the deepest parts of our souls that we would have the comfort of the resurrection, our resurrection, as something that strengthens us. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.